Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews 11, believe it or not. We're going to keep looking at that chapter. It's such a good chapter. Oh, I am so tormented every week about what not to tell you. I have a lot to tell you, but I'm skipping far more. Uh, it's just, uh, it's painful. So this morning we're going to be looking at seeing what can't be seen, enabled by faith. So I just want to ask you some questions. How do you live? When you look back at your life, you know, last week, last month, last year, um, what captivates your heart? What drives you? Uh, is it clothing and furniture and cars and food and fun and, you know, your job? Is your job kind of the, the thing that you live for? Um, uh, do you trust in what you can see and only in what you can see? Are you from Missouri, the, the show me state? Um, you know, were you born in the town of Doubting Thomas and your life philosophy is, well, I'm not going to believe until I see. I mean, is that where you're at? Is your favorite vacation spot the quaint little town of Little Faith? And is your favorite sport fretting and worrying and trusting in yourself? Or do you live in this world as an alien and stranger? You kind of live in this world, but you feel like you're not part of it. You're really kind of just visiting here. Uh, is your life a, a fleeting vapor to you? Do you kind of feel like an anxiety to just do more for God and to serve him more? Because you know that any day Christ could come back or you could die and go to be with him. And you want to make sure you 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 pour your life into the things of eternity. And you realize that all of the pleasures and all the things that the world loves so much and really sets before us as the ultimate goal of what we should strive for is really fool's gold. And it's not really anything that we can take with us. Were you born in the town of good trust? And is your life's philosophy, I believe, so that I can see? See, these are the kinds of things that we are engaging here in the book of Hebrews. Now, is your favorite pastime talking with the king, pondering his word, listening to him speak to you as you pour over the scriptures and meditate on his word to you and, and talking back to him in prayer? There are those who live by faith and those who live by doubt. There are those who live by faith and those who live by sight. There are those who live by faith and those who refuse to believe that there is a God, that Jesus is his son, that angels exist, that demons exist, that there is a cosmic warfare going on in the spiritual realm all around us that we can't see and that they are fighting for the souls of men, for some of your souls. The author of Hebrews states in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. I don't know about you, but that verse scares me. When I look at my life and I realize how often I don't live by faith, that is how often God has no pleasure in me. And so if we want to please God, and of course we do if we love him, we need to live by faith. That's all there is to it. And that's why chapter 11 exists. It exists here after the statement I just quoted to remind us that it is absolutely necessary for the followers of Christ 
to live by faith because that is what defines them as followers of Christ. Of course, there is a demonic host working against you behind the scenes, exploiting your fleshly desires and trying to get you from following Christ, trusting in Christ, believing in God's word, living for eternity. And the question is, is Satan succeeding in these things or not? You know, if I had some insider information and I don't, but if I did, and I could tell you that a month from today, the rapture would occur. Would that change the way you lived? I mean, if you're sitting out there thinking, well, certainly it would. Well, my question to you is, why aren't you living that way now? I mean, do you believe that Jesus could come like a thief in the night, that he could come any time, that we should live every day as if it is our last day? I know these things are convicting. They're convicting to me. And if you're out there thinking, well, Pastor Hughes, what about you? I just want you to know I have put myself under the fire all week. You only get an hour. (laughs) I'm under the fire myself longer than you. And I know these things are convicting, but... The reason we're here is to try and snap ourselves out. The reason I'm doing this series is because I see a lot of people just kind of going along, um, loving the things of the world and accumulating the things of the world and not really getting a clue that this is about eternity. These are about things unseen. We need to live for eternity now, for things unseen now, and not put our hope and our trust and all our efforts and energy and money and resources into things destined to perish. Soon we will have no opportunity to win souls for Christ, to live by faith, to trust in the promises of God. And so we need to just be snapped out of it. We need to have our, you know, choker chain jerked on. So we kind of wake up and go, whoa, my life is half over. It's three quarters over. It may be over this afternoon. When somebody runs into me with their semi truck. We don't know when we're going to go. And so we need to live for Christ now. Because now is the only time you can do anything about it. The past is the past. The future is unknown. So look in your Bibles at Hebrews 11 and follow along as I read verses 8 through 16. This section begins to put forth Abraham as the great example of faith. We read, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive him beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them, And having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. But those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. 
And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a place for them. From this text, I want to show you four effects that true saving faith produces in the life of a believer. So that you can really look at your life and evaluate it and ask yourself, do I have this kind of faith? If not, to seek it. And if you do, but to a smaller degree, to seek to have it in a larger degree so that you can give glory to God and so that you can receive that great reward. First, your faith should produce trust in God. Abraham is our primary example here. And look at verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. The Greek indicates that immediately he obeyed. Notice the text says when he was called, not after he was called, but it's as if Abraham was called. And while God was still speaking, he was packing his stuff. He, he immediately instantaneous obedience is what's being emphasized here. As soon as God told him to leave, man, he was getting ready. There was no delay. And we talked about this last time, and so I'm not going to go into it in great detail right now, but just to remind us that true saving faith produces action in the direction of God's word. Always. There is no such thing as disobedient faith. It's disobedient unbelief and obedient faith. Now consider that Abraham... Before that time, never knew about God. He lived in Mesopotamia. He was an idol worshiper, a pagan. So here he is. He's a pagan living in a foreign land. God appears to him. Now you think, well, I I don't remember God appearing to him in Genesis. Well, it doesn't say that in Genesis. But Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, when he's giving that sermon to the Jews, which made them so mad, they stoned him to death for it says, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham got a vision or dream or some theophany, some appearance of God. And God said, get out of Dodge. And he said, OK, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. The call of God was so strong in Abraham's life that immediately he left his country, he left his relatives, he left his house, he left his people, he left his false religion, he left everything. And that is pretty amazing. We can begin to see why he is such a great man of faith. It is a good and encouraging sign to see this in a young believer, isn't it? Somebody comes to Christ and man, they're, they're pitching their sin as fast as they can unload it. You know, I, I love it when they come out, oh, Pastor Jack, I, is this bad? Yeah, that's bad. Okay, I'm getting rid of it. How about this? That, that's not good either. Okay, I'm not doing that anymore. You know, just, they just want to get rid of it. Just get rid of it. And they're eager to get rid of it. They want to get rid of it. Man, they're going to pitch their old life right now. And they want to get all that out of there because then they found Christ. And they're excited about it. And they want to be walking with the Lord. They want to reject what God wants them to reject and accept what God wants them to accept. And they're more than happy to do that. 
And consider that Abraham didn't even know where he was going either. I mean, he's starting to pack, and in the back of his mind, he's probably like, I wonder where I'm going. I mean, think about that. You know, that would be a legitimate question. You know, when I have all my servants and all my stuff, do I walk out into the front of the house and kind of spin around like this and close my eyes and stop and go that way? I mean, which way do you go? Which way do you go? He didn't know. The believer's Bible commentary says, quote, the walk of faith often gives the impression to others of being imprudent and reckless. But the man who knows God is content to be led blindfolded, not knowing the route ahead, end quote. You start walking by faith in the promises of God, and soon you're going to have people coming up to you going, oh, you're being a little rash, you're being a little bit foolish. I mean, let's not, you know, go. I mean, I realize God gave these promises, but they were given a long time ago, and a lot of people have died trusting in them, and they never came to pass. You know, I wouldn't throw your life away by trusting in even people in the church. I've even had people in the church rebuke me for trusting God. Be assured, faith in the promises of God, correctly understood, is never foolhardy. foolhardy. The fools are those who do not trust God's word. John Calvin, speaking of Abraham, said, quote, He was called from his own country. He indeed did, in this way, undergo a voluntary exile, while yet he did nothing but by God's command. And no doubt... It is one of the chief things which belong to faith, not to move a step except God's word show us the way. And as a lantern gives us light, according to what David says in Psalm 119, 105, let us then learn that it is a thing to be observed through life that we are to undertake nothing to which God does not call us, end quote. And that's true. We need to make sure that we aren't, quote, living by faith in nothing. We live by faith in God's word and what God has said. And we don't take any steps unless God has said it. But we take all steps because he does. I find it a bit amusing that God didn't tell Abraham where he was going. He merely said, go to the place I will show you. Now, why do you think he tormented him in that way? Get all your stuff together and get ready. I'll show you where you're going. Well, where is it? Should should I go north or south, east or west? Just get ready. I'll show you. You lose your job and all your bills are still coming in. How are you going to pay your rent? How are you going to pay your mortgage? How are you going to buy food? How are you going to, you know, survive? Where are you going to work? What will you do? How will God provide for you? And all these are mysteries, aren't they? All these are unknown variables. You don't know. And God's up there. (laughs) You're going to have to trust me now. I've put you into a straitjacket. It's either trust me or die. You're going to do it or not. You're going to fret or not. You're going to worry or not. I'm giving you an opportunity to live by faith. You can live by faith or not. And all you have is things like, he will never leave you or forsake you. 
God knows what you need before you ask. Trust in the Lord, fret not. It leads only to evil doing. He will supply all of your needs according to his riches and grace in Christ Jesus. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or begging bread. And all of a sudden you realize, well, I I know that. Yes, but you don't know any specifics, do you? Why does God hold back the specifics? Because he wants us to live by faith. He wants us to trust him for what he has said, not what he has not said. But of course, what we want to know is what he hasn't said, right? As soon as you lose your job, why God, why? And where will I find a work now in this world, in this economy? As if God doesn't know. As if he could send a little angel to you and tell you he's not going to. He wants you to live by faith. And so God shows up to Abraham and says, pack up and head out to the place I'm going to eventually show you. Look at verse 9. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, and dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. He was given the land of promise, but others were in control of it. That's a bummer. (laughs) He was a foreign. He was an alien. He had no rights of citizenship. He never built a house. He lived in a tent. You know, for those who go camping, I mean, you know, weekend's okay. But a hundred years, a hundred years in a tent. It'd be like, you know, somebody extremely wealthy buying you all the land from the border of Mexico all the way up through Malibu. Said, yeah, San Diego. Yeah. Huntington Beach, Malibu. It's all yours. I, I give it to you. Cool. So get on there and get it. All right. So you sell your house, have the garage sale, pare down, you know, to just your bare necessities. You get your camper and your trailer and you head down. You go into a little camping spot there and you're waiting. Other people, campers are going, so how long are you here? Well, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but I want you to know all this land's mine. (laughs) And they're looking at you thinking, oh, one of those. (laughs) He must have grown up in the 60s. Think of how people would think you were so weird. What do you, what do you mean? What do you mean, you, you, this is all yours? Oh, yeah, God gave it to me. The whole, the whole coastline here. Well, pal, I got a house down there. It's my house. No, it's not. Yes, it is. I just haven't received it yet. So keep good care of it. See, that, that seems radical. That seems insane if it were not for the promise of God. But when God speaks, it's as good as a done deal. And though he never received it, though he was a foreigner in that land that was given to him for 100 years until he died at the age of 175. Yet 
God said, I'm giving it to you. R. Kent Hughes points out, quote, the only land Abraham ever owned was Sarah's tomb, a cave in the field of Machpelah near Hebron, which he bought from Ephron the Hittite, according to Genesis chapter 23, end quote. Oh, great. What do you own? I own a cave. I mean, the whole thing's mine, technically speaking. But I did have to purchase this to get it a little bit beforehand. The rest comes free later. When Christ returns a second time in glory, the righteous will inherit the earth. Abraham will get his promise land in full with the king he has trusted in. This is why Jesus said to the centurion with great faith in Matthew eight eleven, I say to you that many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There will be a kingdom established on earth and that kingdom will then continue on into eternity. They're going to get what they hoped for. They're going to get it. They still haven't got it, but they will because God said so. And notice that though the patriarchs didn't receive the promised land while living in earth, they are going to receive it. Look at verse 11. Not only that, we read in verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life. This also shows Abraham's faith. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I thought it shows Sarah's faith. No, no, it just looks that way. Think, well, what do you mean? I mean this. When you translate this verse, you have to decide who it's talking about because the verse has some things in it which make it kind of hard to interpret. The New American Standard, for instance, translated, just as I read, by faith even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive. But when you read the Genesis account, both Abraham and Sarah laughed when God said, you're going to have a child, right? Yeah, and if you haven't read it, that's what they did. And Abraham then eventually believed, and he's described as having believed, and many places, both in the Old and New Testament, Sarah is never described as having believed. As a matter of fact, God appeared and said, you're going to have a child when Abraham was 75, and Sarah didn't believe. She didn't believe for 25 years until the angel appeared again. And when the angel said, at this time next year, Sarah will have a child, and Sarah was now 99 or 90, and and Abraham was 99, and so you hear this giggling in the tent. And the angel of the Lord, Christ, says, why is Sarah laughing? In other words, why is she mocking me when I have just said, that you're going to have a child. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And Sarah says, I didn't laugh. She lies to cover up her unbelief and mocking of the promise of God. And the Lord says, no, but you did. And it never says she had faith. That's one reason I don't think this is talking about Sarah, but talking about Abraham's faith. But that's not all. If you look at the text, you'll notice something pretty unique in verse 11. Notice it says, by faith, even Sarah herself. Do you see anything unique about that? I mean, are there any other by faiths in the text? All the way through it. Are there any other even, put the person's name there, herself or himself? No. 
This is the only one in the whole passage where it's emphatically stated. It's like this. By faith, even Sarah herself. That's what it is. It's emphatic. And it's the only one in the whole text. Why? Why? Something is unique about Sarah that makes this whole discussion of faith, Abraham's faith, both before and after is the flow of the context, unique. Why is she here? Why is she singled out emphatically? There's something unique, even Sarah herself. I believe she is emphasized because she didn't believe, but because Abraham believed, even Sarah herself, in disbelief, still conceived. I know you may be thinking to yourself, well... Are you sure? Look at the context. Look at what it says right afterwards. Verse 12. In verse 12, it speaks of Isaac being born of one man. Okay, you say, so it does talk about Abraham before and after, but it does mention Sarah there, right? True. But the real clincher is a phrase translated, received the ability to conceive. That's something you can't really get a grip on unless you have a little Greek. Katabolein spermatos. It's really dunamin, dunamos, the power to katabolein, to throw, cast forth, put forth, produce seed. Sarah didn't do that. She couldn't do that. Women can't do that. That means the text can't be talking about Sarah. Abraham in verse 12 confirms that therefore there was born of one man and the NIV tries to capture this and what it does is it actually puts Abraham's name in the text in verse 11 though it doesn't appear in the Greek it translates it this way by faith Abraham even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren Abraham was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. The NIV's translator, they justified putting Abraham in there by ellipsis. You know what that is? You're thinking, no, my English is is old. Okay, so let's hear, here we go. We have, uh, we're talking about Tim. Picking on you, Tim. Um, We're talking about Tim. Tim woke up in the morning. He ate breakfast. And drove to work. Notice how the first time I mention it, I say Tim. Tim woke up. The second time I mention it, he ate breakfast. The third time I mention it, drove to work. I don't even have a subject there, right? It is supplied by the context. The near or far context, the near context in this case, would be Tim is he who got up. Tim is he who ate breakfast. And Tim is the one who drove to work. But we usually just say the person's name. Then we give the pronoun and then we just describe other things they did. And all of those subjects are supplied what is by called ellipsis. So that is why the NIV translators inserted Abraham by faith. Abraham, because he is in view, obviously, in the verses all preceding and the verses following. The Net Bible also tries to do this and they do it without inserting Abraham's name. And they say by faith, even though Sarah herself was barren and he was too old, He received the ability to to procreate because he regarded the one who had given the promise to be trustworthy. One might argue that verse 11 does say she considered him faithful, but that little she there, 
you could go both ways. It can be he or she because the verb here isn't masculine or feminine. And that is why some of the better tr- uh, interpreters, F.F. F. Bruce, Leon Morris, Simon Kistemacher, John MacArthur, and less well-known myself, take that view. And this doesn't mean that Sarah was godless. Obviously wasn't. She appears in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as a woman who trusted God when Abraham twice had the lame brain idea that in order to spare his life, he would say, she is my sister, and let another man take her as his wife. And so she trusted God kind of being the ultimate example of submission. But in this case, there is nothing in the scriptures which says she trusted God, that God would give her a child. As a matter of fact, after 25 years, she denied it with a lie. So we would have an interpretation of verse 11. This is kind of the expanded paraphrased interpretation is this. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past the age of childbirth, was able to produce seed and conceive a child by even Sarah herself, who didn't believe because he considered God faithful, who had promised him a male heir through Sarah. Paul describes Abraham's amazing amazing faith in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. And this is just incredible. He's talking about how all of us can be children of Abraham through faith. And he says this, in hope against hope, he believed. So that he might become the father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith. He contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that God had promised he was able to perform. God told Abraham he would have a child. Just think about this. I mean, they longed to have a child for... 75 years, no child. And God says, you're going to have a child. And they're like, oh, praise God, even though we're so old, we're going to have a child. And he's thanking God. He's praising God. And then what happens? A year goes by, no child. Two, three, 10, 15, 20, 25. Think about that. Think about how difficult that would be to continue in faith. And it not only says he continued to believe God's promise, but as time went on and it became more impossible for him and Sarah to have a child, he grew stronger in faith. I mean, he he looked at his body and Sarah's and they're shuffling around. And he's thinking, you know, am I really going to have a child? God said so. I'm believing it. And the older he got and the more impossible it became for the promise to be fulfilled, the stronger his faith became until he just knew it was going to happen. It was going to happen because God said so. And God made it clear with Sarah. And the question is, and when Paul describes this in Romans 4, what is the gem here? Because he considered God. He considered 
God was able to perform what he promised. This is the key. Whenever you begin to doubt, whenever you begin to think, I don't know, how's this going to happen? How are we going to provide for ourselves? Who's, how's God going to fix this situation? And you're just kind of at the end of you. That's the problem. You're, you're thinking of you and you're thinking of your circumstances. You need to take your eyes off of those things and put them on God and say, who is God? What can God do? He is God almighty. Nothing is impossible for him. And if he makes a promise, he has to fulfill it. And he has the power to fulfill it. And he will fulfill it. And he has a perfect record of fulfilling it. You don't know how he's going to do it. But you know he will. Because he always does. Because he's God. And what we can learn from this is true faith produces a trust in God against all odds. Against all obstacles. Against anything that seems to render the promise of God impossible. Yet God does. You just go through the scriptures. There are so many examples of impossible things that became unimpossible because of God. I mean, God tells Jonah, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. He gets swallowed by a fish. There is no way he's showing up in Nineveh. He is fish bait. Then soon he's preaching there. Think about it. You see, this amplifies the glory of God when he waits until things are absolutely impossible. And he does that in our lives, doesn't he? You know, sometimes people say, you know, seeing is believing. That's the motto of those people who don't believe God. Others try to escape having faith in God by claiming, well, you can't just believe the Bible. You can't just go willy-nilly trust in God. That's, That's sinful presumption. No, it's not. Presumption is when you trust God for something he hasn't promised. Another kind of presumption is to not trust God when he has promised. We need to trust God. The fool is the one who does not trust God. True faith knows that God will fulfill its word because it considers God, who is faithful, who is almighty, who is all-powerful, who has never failed. He is perfectly faithful and just says, God's going to do it. I have no idea. To me, it seems rather impossible. But God's going to do it. And he always does. Secondly, your faith should enable you to see what can't be seen. I love this part. Look at verse 10. For he, Abraham, was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 12. It talks about this city a little bit more. Now, 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels. Look down at Hebrews thirteen fourteen. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Jesus in Revelation chapter 3 verse 12 says, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. 
and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write my name, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. I mean, maybe that's a verse that's for pro tattoo. I don't know. God tattoos and you know, it's going to be an indelible ink. He puts his name, the new Jerusalem, my name. We, well, we stamp you barcode. This person belongs to God. Later on, towards the end of Revelation, in Revelation 21, 2, we read, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. There it is, the new Jerusalem. And so I just want you to ask yourself, is this your home at New Jerusalem? Is that the home that you long for? The home you want to be at? Do you see all of your existence here as temporary? Yeah, I'm just here for a little while, and then I'm going home to that place which can only be seen by faith. Faith sees the city whose builder and architect is God. It's kind of like Christian and hopeful in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress as they're on their way, they come to the delectable mountains and they meet the shepherds. You remember the shepherds? Shepherds' knowledge, experience, watchful and sincere. And these shepherds first take them to the top of a hill called Error. And they look down from the hill called Error. And when they look down, they see all these bodies dashed to pieces on the rocks below. And they go, what happened to those people? They didn't believe in the resurrection. They take them to the top of another hill called Caution. And when they look down, they see all of these tombs. It's like, well, whose tombs are these? These are the tombs of those who have died in Doubting Castle. And Christian and hopeful are grieved at these things. And then Bunyan writes, quote, then they said to the, then the, then said the shepherds one to another, let us now show the pilgrims the gates of the celestial city. If they have skill to see through the looking glass, the pilgrims lovingly accepted the motion. So they led them to the top of a high hill called clear and gave them the looking glass they tried to look, but thinking of the last thing shown to them by the shepherds, it made their hands shake and they could not look steadily through the glass. Yet they thought they saw something like a gate and also some of the glory of that place. Then they went away and saying, thus by the shepherds secrets are revealed which from all other men are kept concealed. Come to the shepherds then, if you would see things deep, things hid, and that mystery be. Here Bunyan depicts what is happening here this morning. A shepherd is trying to get you to see things. Do you see him? Do you see him? You know, there are times when we, we wish you could see things better than we could, but we can. I remember just this morning we were driving down. I, it was kind of fresh in my mind. After preparing the sermon, we were driving down Olive, and we were going down, and I looked across the way, and, and I could see the mountains in the background, but there was the marine layer. That's what you call it when you live here. When you don't, it's smog. Um, <laughs> the marine layer was happening, and, uh, and you could see the outline of the hill and that there were some buildings, but it was, it was dim. You couldn't see any detail. It was, it was fuzzy. 
faith that sees Christ, sees the angel, sees heaven, sees the glories to come. And it may not allow you to see all the details and you always want to see more, but at least you can see them. Bunyan pictures towards the end of the book when Christian and Hopeful were out of eyesight of Doubting Castle, right before they crossed the river of death, that Christian Hopeful's vision became clear. And this is what Bunyan writes. Now, as they walked in this land, they had more rejoicing than in parts more remote from the kingdom to which they were bound. And drawing near to the city, they had yet a more perfect view of it. It was built of pearls and Precious stones, the streets were paved with gold and because of the natural glory of the city and the reflection of the sunbeams upon it, Christian fell sick with desire and hopeful also had a fit or two of the same disease and both like crying for a while because of their pangs, end quote. You who are older in the Lord, you have walked with faith for a long time whose hair has long been silver. You know this. Your body is breaking down. Life is hard. Just going through the routine of getting dressed and going to bed is about all you can handle. I mean, you wish you could eat, but you can't eat very much anymore. The doctor has told you not to eat so many things that you're down to vanilla wafers and oatmeal. (laughs) You're tired all the time, so you try to sleep, but when you try to sleep, you wake up. And you find more and more comfort in God and His Word and prayer and his promises and your mind turns towards the celestial city more and more and as you approach the river of death you ache to be there you long to be there i remember joan bartholomew who is now in glory and she was about ready to die one time she had multiple near-death bouts before she finally was taken home and i remember She told me when she finally got back here on Sunday morning, yeah, I'm kind of disappointed. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, she says, when I was really sick and the doctors said, you know, you might not make it. I was so excited. I thought I might see Jesus today. Today I might see Jesus and she said, I was, I was so, just take me, Lord, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. She said, I was so excited, and then they made me better. <laughs> you know, when you have faith in the afterlife, it just makes you long to be there. And the more your body starts breaking down, the more you want to be there, because the less this life has for you. And you see that celestial city better as you ripen with years. Look at verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, just stop there. All these refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, They're mostly Abraham in the context, but Isaac and Jacob are also mentioned. Verse 9. They never received the land they lived in. They were always visitors there. You know, the greatest examples of faith are those that endure for the longest periods of time because that's what really tests your faith, right? I mean, anybody can have faith for five minutes. But five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 175 years, that, that is Herculean. That is massive faith. 
Because the world looks at faith as a kind of a probability. That if Christ hasn't come in the last 2,000 years, then chances are he won't. There is no chance. He will. Just not on your time. And he's not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not willing for any of you to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You're at the doctor and he says, oh, I'm so sorry. You've got this terrible disease. And they're going, oh, praise God. I can't wait to see Jesus. He's going to look at you like you need some medicine. What can I give you? Their whole thought is this life is all there is. I must keep you alive forever in this life. And when you die in this life, it is a tragedy. And you're thinking, listen, don't do anything heroic here. I'm ready. I'm ready to check out. He's going to look at you. You are morbid. You're twisted. What church do you go to? No, Abraham had faith. He had it all through his life. Helen Casterline wrote, I go on not knowing. I would not if I might. I'd rather walk in dark with God than walk alone in the light. I'd rather walk by faith with him than to walk alone by sight. That is what faith says. When verse 13 goes on to say, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, the idea is that faith was able to see through the dimness and to grasp onto these unseen realities that you can't see unless you believe in the promises of God. And it was able to see these and welcome the very realities that were promised. Picture in your mind some sailors on a big, great masted ship and they're all loaded up and they're all ready to go out to sea in a long voyage and the captain says, steer by the coastline. There's this big rocky coastline and all the families are there waving and the sailors are waving and they're greeting, they're saluting each other, but from a distance, but from a distance. They can't hug, but they can see each other. And as the boat captain says, turn away from shore, They see their loved ones fade, but they know they're coming back and they'll see him again. And so they have a hope. You know, there's many of you who've lost loved ones. They're with the Lord now. Children, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, relatives, friends. You're going to see him again. It is not goodbye. If you know the Lord and they know the Lord, you are going to see them again. I had somebody come who we know each other in heaven. Of course we will. And you'll like me a lot better. (laughs) I'll be fixed then. And so will you. Look at the last part of verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. I like this. They never saw this country with their physical eye, but they see it by faith. They welcome it from a distance and long to be there. Does that describe you? Do you just long? Do you ever like sit around and just get caught up in the glories to come? And you just, you just, Lord, I can't wait to get out of here, especially on Mondays. It works good on Mondays. (laughs) The whole point here is that faith, right? Faith gives you a sight that those who don't believe can't see. Recently, I, I... I read a a book by Randy. Well, I read it on the way back 
back and forth to England, half there and half back. But I read a book by Randy Alcorn. It's kind of a fiction book, but it's called uh, The Edge of Eternity. And in that book, um, this guy gets caught in between kind of the real, the, the physical world that we live in and uh, the spiritual world. And, and in, in that, he's kind of pilgriming towards the city there is Charis, the Greek word for grace. They're going towards Charis because that's where the king tells them to go. So they're walking the red road to Charis. And, and on that way, every once in a while, they get up on top of a hill and they can see this huge chasm this huge like canyon that just goes off down forever and it just reeks and 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 yet Karas is on the other side of that and they don't understand how they can get across that chasm but they're supposed to go towards the city and what's interesting is the people who don't believe in the king they can't see the chasm at all they just walk in that direction and fall off into it and the, the whole point there is that when those who are on the road and believe in the king, they get spiritual sight and they begin to see the things that people who don't believe can't see. And the more faith they have, the clearer the vision is of Karas and the chasm and the spiritual warfare that's going on. It's great. It fit right in. I didn't intend to do that, but it did. Notice, notice the emphasis on seeing here in the text. Look at verse 1. We are told that faith is the conviction of things not seen. Look at verse 3 of Hebrews 11. God made everything out of nothing. In verse 4, Noah believed in faith after being warned about things not yet seen. Go down to verse 19. Abraham believes God would raise Isaac from the dead, though he had never seen a resurrection before. In verse 26, we read that Moses was looking to the reward, which he never saw. He just expected he would receive by faith. In verse 27, we are told Moses endured seeing him who is unseen. Ten times in Hebrew 11, faith is either defined are described as seeing with the eye of faith things which cannot be seen without faith. That is why people think you're loony when you're a Christian and you live for the Lord and they think, what is wrong with you? I just believe in things you don't believe in. You believe in, I don't know what, primordial slime? I believe in the promises of God. That's just how it is. I... I see with the eye of faith, I see angels and demons and I see that there is a spiritual warfare. Not with my physical eye, just know these things because God's word describes them and I believe it. So I can see them in my mind. I know what's going on. I know that when I die, death is a necessary passage from this life into the next. And you know what? I can't wait to die. That freaks people. They're almost going to call 911 on you. It's like, man, he's suicidal. He can't wait to die. He's suicidal. No, I just believe what Jesus said. He who believes in me will never die. That's what I believe. And so, yes, I'm looking forward to dying. I'm sorry that freaks you, but you can look forward to dying too. Either that or you can go through life pretending you're not going to die, though everybody does. And then when you do die, all your relatives can say, oh, he's in a better place now. But you won't be. 
You can see the tribulation. You can see the Antichrist. You know, do you ever just imagine what it's going to be like and when Christ comes back in glory and the heavens are rolled back like a scroll and God commands that all men can now see into the spiritual realm and they see Christ and they see the holy angels and they see the saints clothed in fine linen coming back in great glory and all the wicked who haven't believed these things and refused to believe these things and never could see these things now see them with their physical eye and are in terror and all the righteous who have believed these things by faith and seen them by faith now they see them with their eyes and they praise God is that you or not that's what we're talking about here if you can't see these things you don't have faith and you need to get it three your faith should keep you from misplaced hope Look at verses 13 and 14. All these, and again, primarily speaking of Abraham, but also Isaac and Jacob and really anybody who believes, confess that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. As soon as you say, I'm an alien and stranger, what you're saying is, I have a different country that's not of this world. Verse 15, indeed. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Notice that their hope was in heaven, not the world, not their houses, not their job and cars and food and fun. Their hope was in heaven. And if you lose all your earthly possessions, then so what? So what? You know, sometimes during these big fires, you have people, they're just on their knees, and they're just wailing and weeping. My house burned out. I lost all my antiques. Listen, anybody here have antiques? You're losing them. You're losing them. I mean, this was the error of the pharaohs of Egypt, right? Didn't the pharaohs of Egypt take their tombs, big tombs, you know, load them full of a bunch of stuff? gold and all those cool pieces of furniture. I'm so glad they did that because now we got it. (laughs) They didn't take a single piece of straw with them. They didn't take a speck of dust with them. It's all been left behind. Now it's in the British Museum. You go look at it in Cairo. Look at it in the Louvre. Look at it. I'm glad they stored it up. We need it. Teaches us a lot of cool things. It's cool to look at all that gold. They didn't take any with them. You don't take anything with you. You're going to lose everything you have. Get used to it. And if it happens earlier than later, oh, well, you don't have to worry about it. You know, that's a good thing about not having anything. You don't have to worry about it. And that is why the people mentioned in Hebrews 10, verse 34, in the preceding chapter, acted the way they did the author of hebrews says for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one yes the wicked can take my house and take my possessions and i can lose everything in this world so i'm going to inherit the earth i'm going to inherit the earth neener neener you can have it if you want but i'm going to inherit the earth Martin Luther said, quote, whosoever professes that he has a father in heaven confesses himself a stranger on earth. Hence, there is in the heart an ardent longing like that of a child living among strangers in want and grief 
far from his fatherland, end quote. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Listen, if there isn't an afterlife, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and go to that afterlife, if he isn't coming from the afterlife to take us to be with him in that afterlife, then we are of all men most to be pitied. Christianity is pathetic. But if it's true, let's live like it. Let's live like it. Let's live like it. If you believe these things are true, then live like it. Let's just give it lip service. Trust in this world, and this world is going to let you down. Trust in this world, you will lose all. I mean, have things. They're all given to you by God. Enjoy them. Use them for His glory. Anything His Word allows, go for it. Reach the lost. Make friends for yourself. Win them to Christ. Serve the Lord. Give to the ministry. Use it for eternity. Enjoy it. No problem, but don't fall in love with it. Don't love it before Christ. Don't cling on it to the exclusion of obeying God. That would be a misplaced hope. For and finally, your faith should produce a great reward. Think about what we've learned so far from this text, how Abraham didn't know where he was going. He didn't know how Sarah was going to be able to conceive a baby through him. He didn't know when this baby would be born. And he didn't even know the reason why God was doing all this. I mean, you know, there was going to be a nation. But a lot of the things, why wait? And how come I have to leave? And why wander in a place I don't know where I'm going? I mean, think of all the things that God never told him. He's going, well, what is the reason for all of this? But he had the promises and the knowledge of who God was. And that was enough. You see, we always want to know all the things God doesn't tell us, right? I mean, when something happens, we always want to say, why, Lord? Why are you doing this to me? Well, if I told you, then you wouldn't have to live by faith now, would you? So just trust me and obey me, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Faith says, Lord, I don't know where you're taking me. I don't know how you're going to accomplish things. I don't know when it's going to take place. I don't even know why you're doing this the way you're doing this. I mean, if I was God, I would do it in a different way, but I'm not. So, okay, I'm going to trust you. Look at the middle of verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. I love that. You go through the scriptures and you find these different instances where God describes himself. Here's just one example. Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Think about that. Our text says he's not ashamed to be called their God. Who? Anybody who lives by faith in him. God's not ashamed to claim you. I mean, could you just put your name in there? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and you. God is glad to claim you when you're glad to trust him by faith. He's not ashamed to be called your God. Even though you're a sinner, he knows you're a sinner. Even though you're weak, he knows you're weak. Even though you keep blowing it, he knows that too. You live by faith, he's not ashamed to be called your God. And look at the very end of verse 16 and notice how God responds to those who walk in faith for he has prepared a city for them. I like that. 
I like building. Matthew 25, 34, Jesus speaking to the rewards that await those who at his right hand who sacrifice time and energy and resources to serve others. And he says, then the king will say to those in his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he gives them the kingdom. He gives them the world. He gives them everything. He gives them Christ. He gives them everything. Jesus spoke of this, right? In John 14, verse 2. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. He said that to the disciples who were very grieved and distressed because Jesus was going to leave them. He says, listen, don't worry about it. I'm going to leave you. Yes, but I'm going to come again. And I'm going to take you to be where I am so that where I am, you can be. And guess what? I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's good. Do you think God in his infinite wisdom and knowledge could prepare you a pretty decent place? I think so. I think so. You think you're going to go up in there and go, I was wishing the hallway was a little bigger. He knows whatever, whatever you like. His resources are infinite. He will make all things perfect in his time. In this life, the true believer lives by faith, trusting in the promises of God. So does your faith cause you to trust God? Does your faith enable you to see what can only be seen by faith? Does your faith keep you from misplaced hope in you and things of the world and passing pleasures, but only in God? Does your faith make you confident that God has prepared for you a great reward? If so, you need to praise God because you are a child of faith and things are good for you and they will be better. But if you're sitting out there and you're thinking to yourself, Pastor Jack, man, all of this you're talking about, it seems pretty Twilight Zone-like. I mean, it seems like science fiction. You're, you're asking me to do some things. I just, I, I'm not there. You know what? No one is there apart from the grace of God. It's not hard to believe. It's impossible to believe apart from the grace of God. We love our sin. We love this world. We love everything we shouldn't. and hate everything we should. You just need to cry out to God and just tell him, listen, I don't want to go to hell. I want to love you. I want to have faith in you. I am a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve to be judged. I know Christ died on the cross for my sins. I know he rose again on the third day. But you know what? I just have such a hard time believing these things. Help my unbelief. And you think God's going to be up there and go, no way. Get away from me. I'm not going to help you. I only help the self-sufficient. I only save the righteous. I'm not going to bother with you because you're too needy. Those are the very people God loves to help. They are the only people he helps. So just cry out to God and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Give me faith, the faith of Abraham, so that I can trust in you, so that I can live for you. He won't deny that prayer. And for the rest of us, may God grant all of us like Abraham, to grow strong in faith and to die not receiving what is promised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in this text.
May we, as we leave this place, just think about the things we've learned from Abraham. May we be like him and trust you and believe in you, both in duration, both both in difficulty, both against opposition. And Father, may you be pleased with our faith and may our faith be a blessing to others and spur them on to. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.